This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Thank you so much for joining us today. On this episode of Upfront, Kiswahili is one of the most spoken languages in the world with over 200 million people using it to communicate for many purposes, especially for commerce. And now the UN says that promoting it also has the benefit of boosting African unity. The most common one that can be used in Swahili is not only in Africa but across the world. For example, we have the word jambo. Jambo means how are you? That is Wafula Wawafula, a Kenyan teacher and author. And a new book highlights the ways in which Nigerian social media users organize political humor around online visual culture as they challenge and speak out against state power. Nigerians, like you know, are very confident people who are quite expressive and loud in a good way. So when you come on social media, you tend to find that, I mean, that tendency replicated in a lot of ways. That is Professor James Yeku, a Nigerian writer and assistant professor of African Digital Humanities at the University of Kansas. His new book titled Cultural Netizenship, Social Media, Popular Culture and Performance in Nigeria. But first, let's hear from you, our listeners. Our question of the week is, what do you think about plans by some African governments to adopt Kiswahili as one of the official languages? It's going to help the young generation stuff and it will be like good for the country because it will ease communication, especially at the borders when you're trying to trade. My name's uh, Sabrina Lubia. People, they know how Kiswahili is important. Yeah, because you're an East African community whereby Kiswahili is used everywhere. My name is Daisy Ndagiri. And uh, yes, Swahili is being made official in our country. And I think it's a very good thing because, first of all, as a East African community, most of the countries speak Swahili. That's Kenya, Tanzania, and also DRC. And if we can't understand our neighbors, it's going to be very hard to do trade and business. Most people come from other countries to Uganda, especially for refugees. And if we can't understand, they can't understand us, we're not going to work things. We shall be very confused. You're listening to Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. The UN declared July the 7th of each year as World Kiswahili Day. It is spoken by an estimated 200 million people in East and Central Africa, making it one of the world's 10 most spoken languages. Kiswahili has been embraced by African regional economic blocs as one of the official languages of the East African community and the Southern African development community. The UN says that promoting the language also boosts African unity. Wafula Wawafula is a Kenyan author of Swahili literature and a language teacher. Joining me from Nairobi, Wafula tells me that even though Swahili traces its roots to coastal communities, it has been adopted by various inland communities who have made contributions to the language. Kiswahili was a native language from people in the coast, especially from the main island. We have the island of Pate, we have the Zanzibar, we have the island of Shama, we have the island of Lamu and other islands in the coast. Now, what happened is that in 1961, when the East Africa 
people are fighting for the for the freedom. In Tanzania, the Tanzania accepts the language Kiswahili through Malim Gilas Nyerere as the language to be used as, as a communication tool for the people to understand each other. Then uh, the Tanzania people through the a slogan called the Uzalendo, they introduced, they accept the Kiswahili as one language so that the British and the Germany could not accept to not be able to listen to that the communication. Now, there seems to be some kind of uh, discrepancy on how many people use the language of Swahili or Kiswahili in the East African region. Do you have an idea on how many people use the language? As for now, from East Africa region, you have the Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda, because there's what we call the, what we call the dialect. Kiswahili, it has almost 27 dialects. And these dialects are spoken in different areas from Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, to the extent to Congo. Even how some people speak Swahili in Mozambique. So these dialects always depend on where you come from, where you stay, and how have you been, uh, have you been maybe in contact with the language. There's an estimate that Swahili is spoken by more than 200 million people in East Africa, East and Central Africa. So, Mr. Wafula, how different is the language of uh, Kiswahili as spoken regionally by different groups? As to me, as what I have come to across um, and people from Southern Sudan and other parts and other part of Africa, we have so many words in the Bantu that can be included into the Swahili language. Because what brings the difference is about the the pronunciation of the vowel alphabet and how the words can be written, but there's something similar. And what are some of the common words used in Swahili that are easily recognizable to even the non-native Swahili speakers? The most common word that can be used in Swahili is not only in Africa, but across the world. For example, we have the word jambo. Jambo means, how are you? Amani, which means peace. We have the man, the word means hakuna matata, that means no problem. Nakupenda, that means I love you. So mm. it's just a, a, a common language that can be used across the, across the continent. That is Wafula Wafula, a Kenyan language teacher and author of Swahili literature, was speaking to me from Nairobi. This month, the government of Uganda announced plans to introduce Kiswahili or Swahili as its official language. We asked Ugandans what they think about that move. My name is Mwangadi Abdullahi Lazima, a student of Victoria University. It's going to help the young generation stuff and it will be like good for the country because it will ease communication, especially at the borders when you're trying to trade. My name is Sabrina Lubia. Personally, I'm a, a language teacher, and uh, what brought me in Uganda is to teach Swahili. Most of my students, they really like Swahili. The percentage in a Swahili class, it's more than uh, the percentage which is in English class. Because now people, they know how Kiswahili is important. Yeah, because you are an East African community whereby Kiswahili is used everywhere. My name is Daisy Ndagiri. And uh, yes, Swahili is being made official in our country, and I think it's a very good thing because, first of all, as a South African community, most of the countries speak Swahili. That's Kenya, 
Tanzania and also DRC. And if we can't understand our neighbors, it's going to be very hard to do trade and business. Most people come from other countries to Uganda, especially for refugees. And if we can't understand, they can't understand us, we're not going to work things. We shall be very confused. Tomorrow, as a Kenneth, I really support it because most of the East African countries do speak Swahili. And this left Uganda behind. Yeah, it will help Uganda because and it will be like an alternative language, just apart from, apart from English. Those were some of the voices of Ugandans speaking on the plans by the Ugandan government to introduce Kiswahili as its official language. You're listening to Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Let's go to West Africa in Nigeria. The government says that social media companies will be required to register and open local country offices and appoint contact persons with the government. A statement from the National Information Technology Development Agency said the regulations were developed with input from major social media companies, including Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, and others. Now, while there's no consensus on how the new regulations will impact social media use in Africa's most populous nation, analysts worry that the government could use this as a pretext to control social media use in the country. And this, in turn, will affect how Nigerian youth use the platforms to mobilize around issues such as human rights, democratic reforms, and police brutality. And supporters of the new rules argue that the regulations will provide a necessary check on the power of social media companies which have unlimited control on content consumed by Nigerian youth. Meanwhile, several new studies are exploring the intersection of social media and politics in Nigeria, including a new book by Professor James Yeku, an assistant professor of African Digital Humanities at the University of Kansas. His new book, titled Cultural Netizenship, Social Media, Popular Culture and Performance in Nigeria, highlights the form in which Nigerians use popular and visual expressions on social media to disrupt state power. I reached Professor Yeku in Kansas to talk about how social media has been a driver for some of Nigeria's most popular social and political movements. So I want to ask you about social media use in Nigeria. If there's anything about Nigerian culture that feeds well into social media use. Yeah, for one, you could think about the expressive nature of Nigerian cultural forms. Nigerians, like you know, are very confident people who are quite expressive and loud in a good way. So when you come on social media, you tend to find that, I mean, that tendency replicated in a lot of ways. You find people sharing melodramatic memes from Nollywood, for instance, to support their own commentaries on, on say, Facebook or, or Twitter. It's that Nigerian braggadocious, you know, confidence in, in display. And all of those also feed off into how people express themselves on the internet. You find a lot of visual forms, a lot of comedic forms, a lot of comics, and, you know, what people are calling Instagram comedies today. You find a lot of Nigerians on TikTok and, and Instagram expressing themselves in such a way that draw from this rich, you know, cultural forms of the country itself. 
and which explains why over the last four years uh, there's been a global embracing of uh, Nigerian culture through the music, the Afrobeat music. Exactly, with Boma Boy winning the Grammy, and but but not just even music, even knowledge itself. In, in recent years, I've I've seen this, you know interaction between Nollywood and even Nigerian music and social media, especially as people bring forms and artistic expressions from this natural contest into Nollywood and then take forms from Nollywood into social media, right? Mm -hmm. I should say forms from Nollywood and this traditional contest into social media. So when people share Nollywood memes on social media, it's this relationship between an older media form and new media technologies. Aside from Nigerians using social media to comment on on culture and society, how are they mobilizing around political issues? That's that's a big one. And uh, viewers, listeners probably remember the Bring Back Our Girls movement in 2014, where you had a lot of Nigerians coming out to protest against Boko Haram's kidnapping of the Chiba girls. And then in 2020, the famous NSAS movement against police brutality was a lot of people using Twitter to coordinate and mobilize protests all over the country. I I, I should say that Nigerians in this particular protest situation did not just use social media to, to rally people to join their cause. They actually went to the street of Lagos and Abuja making this important connection between offline and online environment. It's always important to, to know that both actually feed into each other. But, but, but indeed, Twitter, Facebook, and all of these social media platforms have been very important to how Nigerians mobilize different people to, to around a common cause. In, in the case of, of NSAS, it was the movement against police brutality, and then the Twitter ban itself, which, which resulted from that. How effective would you say uh, they were in terms of effecting political and social change in bringing and galvanizing global support to this cause when they use social media? I, I think in the context of answers, those who mobilized support and mobilized one another around the common cause to protest against police brutality were effective to a large extent. At least the government decided to reorganize this this anti-robbery squad that was the the culprit for, I mean, the initial catalyst for the protest. So in that sense, we can say there was some kind of material change because government responded to to their demands. On the other hand, we cannot forget that technology, digital media in particular in this context is also a side of ambivalence. Ambivalence in the sense that it's not necessarily all good. There are also some downsides to the digital media. So I, I, I don't want us just always romanticizing social media and thinking it was all perfect. Everything is, you know, elder, everything is utopia. I can say, for instance, that during answers, there were members in the LGBTQ community that were bad from, you know, contributing their voice to the protest against police injustice, even when these forms of injustices affected them. So my, my point here is to say it's great, and I think I know you have discussed this to previous speakers, social media did great in helping people to express themselves. But the same social media platforms were, were also used to exclude some other people. Others, so yeah. so that, the point, therefore, is to see social media, to see technology more broadly as this ambivalent space. It's neither good or bad. It's what people you know, do 
on, on in in these platforms on these platforms that's really mm. important as much as it can be groundbreaking in 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 bringing acceptance or attention to to some of these issues uh but also it it does carry with it sometimes uh some of the biases exactly yeah and that's now, why we have misinformation we have hate speech all of those things are the downsides to it a lot of people tend to focus on those downsides but we do need to talk about how in developing countries such as nigeria it is effectively used to mobilize against oppressive regimes mm. Let's talk about the Twitter ban in Nigeria. Nigeria, the po- most populous nation in Africa, one of uh, the countries that has uh, the highest number of users of, of social media, specifically Twitter. Uh, President Buhari, after um, having his tweets removed by uh, the authorities uh, in uh, Twitter because of... Especially because recapturing the politics of answers would help people understand why Niger- the Nigerian government decided to ban Twitter. During the answers, the Nigerian government was alarmed that the Twitter board decided to support the answers movement. Jack Dorsey, for instance, mobilized support in Bitcoin for, for the answers you know, community. And the, the Nigerian government saw that as Twitter basically investing in what they called the destabilization of the country. In, in, in that sense, we can conclude that there's that dimension in which the government saw what Twitter did as really, I mean, really destabilizing. But all of this go back to the question of the public sphere. The idea that unlike many would think, oh, Twitter cannot be a public sphere, social media cannot be an effective public sphere. In the Nigerian context, indeed, it comes to resemble the traditional public sphere, since civil society, state power and citizens can be in some in, in some kind of public dialogue and you know things obviously get done as in, in the, the context of the twitter ban. in case you're just joining us this is upfront on the voice of america my name is jackson Vungani. we're speaking to professor james yeku who is an assistant professor of african digital humanities at the university of kansas his new book titled cultural netizenship social media popular culture and performance in nigeria highlights the form in which Nigerians use popular and visual expressions on social media to disrupt state power. What is your next approach in terms of studying the role and impact of uh, social media on the Ni- Nigerian culture specifically? Oh, th- th- that's an interesting one. So my, my current book, which came out some days ago, Cultural Netizenship, is about how people comment on the internet against political pressure using things like selfies, satirical humor, comedic forms generally. So that immediately suggests that I'm a cultural and literary studies scholar. I'm not necessarily a social scientist, right? And that's why my next project will draw more from the literary side of things. I'm interested in literary controversies on social media as specifically informed by algorithmic systems. So my interest is to look at, say, the politics of transphobia in relation to Chimamanda Adeche and discuss what that means in the context of the reception and reading of African literature. I am one of the few people who have been interested in studying African literary expressions on the internet, what some people call digital literary studies in the African context. And a lot of it has been done 
to talk about, I mean, to document how people use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram to produce new forms of African, you know, literary expressions. Now I'm interested in how African literary controversies and debates and scandals on the internet have this algorithmic side to them, and we do need to talk about them. Also, especially because this connects to the politics of datafication. Interesting. I, I'll be very interested to see that scholarship. But you just mentioned uh, Chimamanda, and I remembered her beef with uh, Akweke. Akweke, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I'm interested great. in those kind of debates and what does what that does to expand the readership and the public of African literature. Mm-hmm. Social media has a role in all of this. How has a role in how we read African literatures today and how we interpret African literatures and how ordinary people who are not necessarily literary scholars, interpret and discuss African literary forms. Mm-hmm. What's the role of algorithms in all of this? That will be my next project. James, thank, uh, you, so thank you so much. Uh, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Anytime, bro. Thank you yeah. so much. Thanks much for doing appreciated. this. Much appreciated. Yeah, take you care, sir. out there. You too. In Lagos, a youth-focused advocacy group, Yaiga Africa, is mobilizing young Nigerians to get registered to vote in Nigeria's coming general election scheduled for February next year. With the low rate of youth participation in the last general election, Yaiga Africa is on a campaign to get as many youth as possible enrolled in the voters' register before the deadline. And to encourage youth voters, the group is hosting a concert to lure youth to get their voter cards. From Lagos, Samuel Okocha reports on how and why this is happening. I feel it's important to, to vote because average um, young person stays at home. I remember the last election I was at home, I didn't feel the need to vote. Oluchi Bernard is one of the many young Nigerians who have just registered to vote in the coming elections in Nigeria. She has come here at the Lagos Tafawa Balewa Square, the venue of a massive campaign to get youth into the voters' register ahead of a promotional concert, also scheduled to hold here. So this period, there's this thing in the air that makes everybody want to come out, and it's very nice for these guys to have organized something like this. So it's good. Are you coming for the concert? I'm not sure, but I'm definitely voting. According to Nigeria's election body in Lagos, only 5% of youth in the state came out to vote in the last general election. To improve that record, Yaga Africa, a Nigeria-based youth advocacy group, is organizing a youth vote concert on Saturday. And to gain access to the concert, attendees will have to tender their voters' cards. And those without their voters' cards will have to register and get their voters' ID. Samuel Okocha... For VOA News in Lagos, Nigeria. Yes, women of today are struggling. But I think you wouldn't compare their struggles to those of the past. I would say technology has exposed the world to so many things. Let's just look at education. For a woman to make it even in university, she needs a lot of effort. For the women of the past, education was not a priority. Marriage was a priority at that time. Meanwhile, the world has changed. Everything has changed. We are in a modern world. In the past, we didn't have an internet. Uh, in the past, people did not observe some human rights. And this time around, the women have been recognized in, in as far as human rights is concerned. 
And in the past, because women were not empowered, men were abusing them in so many ways. We're not considered as important as men. But now, many girls are educated. Uh, most of women in Malawi, they are still not employed because uh, we still have uh, this gender gap in our country uh, whereby some women are not considered as material for professional jobs. That's a very big challenge. On that one, I would say women are suffering because they would uh, look for a job for most six months and then they just get tired and leave it. You're listening to Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani, and from West Africa, let's go to Southern Africa in Malawi, where a group of artists are running a creative center known as the Tribe Hub. The center serves as an incubator for creative and entrepreneurial ventures for up-and-coming artists in Malawi. The Tribe Hub opened last September and now has a brand new and multi-purpose recording studio and the performance stage, carpentry workshop, and many others. Lamek Masina visited the hub and brings us this report. Malawi has recently seen street protests pushing President Lazarus Chagwera to address unemployment in the country. The protesters reminded President Chakwera about his campaign promise that his administration would create one million jobs once voted into power. To address these concerns, the group is running a creative group known as the Tribe Hub that serves as an incubator for creative and entrepreneurial ventures for up-and-coming artists in Malawi. The Tribe Hub opened last September and has now a band a multi-purpose recording studio, a performance stage, and a carpentry workshop. Tawanda Mpando is the manager for the group. Aside from the fact that we wanted to employ ourselves uh, and create jobs, but it also just stems from the point that uh, as an artist, if you don't realize that you should employ yourself, you should work on your craft yourself and find a way to add value to it, then you're not going to gain anything from it. Some artists of the 21-member group a graduate from the University of Malawi with skills in graphic designs, drawing, illustrations, photography, videography, music production, web development, tailoring, and woodwork. So far, the hub has hosted over four events where various artists exhibited their artworks, such as paintings and drawings. It has also helped music artists like Benny Rwanja Jr., improve their skills. I recorded my first song in 2015, but I didn't have time to explore. This time, I can sit down with my fellow creatives, work on a track. How about this? They tell me the directions. We help each other a lot. Before the hub, I couldn't get that. The hub is now working to organize a festival where young and upcoming artists can showcase their talents. Alfred Kambankatsanja is the art director at the tribal hub. Uh, most of the times, uh, right here in Malawi, there's a problem of up-and-coming artists. We, we are not really given um, a platform whereby we can really showcase our arts. Uh, most of the times, people expect you to be known already for you to be called somewhere to perform. Vitumbiko Liwomba is a media marketing concepts and a creative director. She says despite a success story, there are challenges. The major challenge we have is being underestimated. Um, as a young person in Malawi, you are always underestimated to the things that you can actually achieve. Yeah, so 
when we approach people and they see us as young people that really rarely ever take us seriously, even though what we're trying to achieve is something important. However, Liwomba says this hasn't affected their initiative in any way. They say now plans are underway to establish similar hubs in various parts of the country for the benefit of more up-and-coming artists in the country. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Zomba, Malawi. And that's it for this edition of Upfront. Many thanks to you, our guests, and to you, our listeners. Remember to connect with us at voaafrica.com. We are also on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram at VOA Africa. Until next time, I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Let's connect again right here on The Voice of America. Border Crossings. Join host Larry London. Larry London. On Border Crossings, VOA's only worldwide music request hour. Every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in for the biggest hits and amazing artists, win prizes, and get the latest news from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send your requests to Facebook at VOA Larry London, Twitter at Border Crossings, or Instagram at Border Crossings VOA, or call 202-619-2077 and have your favorite music played higher world. Don't miss Border Crossings every weekday at 1500 Universal, only on The Voice of America. Hello, this is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends, breakout artists, new releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and the artists of the past. 